Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. I'm your host, Ed Smith, and this is the podcast where you get to hear about the lives and histories of your favourite musical heroes and theirs. Over the course of this series, I'll be speaking to some incredible musicians, writers, artists and creatives about the three records that have come to define their lives. Now, this isn't yet another podcast highlighting the coolest, the edgiest and most rarefied records people have in their collection. No, no, no. God knows there's enough of those. This is a podcast for everyone, where we celebrate the personal relationship people have with the music that they listen to. So expect some unexpected choices, forgotten favourites from across the musical spectrum, from rock to pop to house. So now, to this week's very, very special guest on Recorded History, none other than Hosier, who, as it turns out, I discovered released the song that would change his life, coincidentally, was on my birthday back in 2013, and what an absolute gift he has been to us all over the last 10 years since. Millions of records sold, and of course millions of fans, as a result in thrall of his really immense talent, coming up on three albums now, by the end of the summer, and I think we counted between us, he got the number wrong. He has actually seven EPs now, including the new one, Eat Your Young, very powerful. It is absolutely mesmerizing is the new EP, Eat Your Young, a real intriguing taste of what's to come with Unreal Unearth, the new album coming out at the end of the summer. Yes, um, what can I say? This is a great chat. I have to, This is a really interesting and enjoyable chat I have with Hosier. He's a thoughtful man, as you would kind of assume from his persona, the way he carries himself, you know, on social media, on stage, and in interviews. Now, we get into it here about the music, of course, his origin story, the son of a jazz drummer, uh, how Take Me to Church absolutely changed his life. Very interesting tale and insight as to how that came about. Him being very uneasy about being called a protest singer, which I thought was also very relieving life on the road, and the absolutely massive year he has ahead of him in 2023. His three choices for his recorded history were absolutely chef's kiss, of course, they were always going to be. Even if he did, as you'll hear in the podcast, get the order wrong more than once. Now, I left it in because he insisted, nay, demanded. He's got a temper on him, though. He was very nice about it. But he did ask that I keep him fluffing his lines in the podcast. So, Hosier, hopefully you are listening. I did, due to your demands. And it is actually quite hilarious. Um, so here it is, Hosier. Really cool and a very funny guy. And his recorded history. I really, really liked him. I thought I would. I hoped I would. And I absolutely did. And hopefully you will too once you listen to the episode. Here it is. Here's me in conversation with the great Hosier. With me today and sitting before me is Hosier. Hey. How's Hosier, it I'm so honored and glad and delighted. Thank you. You're thank here. You. Not at all. Oh, Thanks thank for you. having me. Let's just spend 40 minutes thanking. Thanking each other. <laughs> no, you're so good. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the uh, Belated happy birthday. Oh, thank you it's very much. It's a little much. Late, belated, but... Uh, first question, and the most, I suppose, the deepest and most important one. Was it weird having your birthday on Paddy's Day as a child? It, it wasn't. I won't say it was weird. I mean, I, I, I have nothing to compare it to, so I, 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 I can't say it was weird, even if it was. Is it kind of like having your birthday at Christmas? Or? 
what's great is that I'm actually glad I don't I don't envy people whose birthdays were on Christmas. I think what was nice is that you always had a day off school. Yes. So you always had the day off work as well too. If I when I worked a kind of a like the brief time that I worked a regular job, and then uh, and uh, but then also so your friends were always free, and it was always like, hey, do you want to do a barbecue? Do you want to hang out? Do you want to have a birthday party or whatever? Yeah. When you were a kid, everybody was free. So like there was no schedule issues. I don't, and you didn't have to deal with, it's not like a gift giving day where it's hard it's for... Ch- chocolate was a big thing when I was coming up on Paddy's Day that if you're on in the middle of Lent, mm-hmm. Patrick's Day was a cheat day. There you go. There we go. Yeah. And was there a chance you were going to be called Patrick at any stage? I, I have to thank my was parents. Was it mooted? For, it was mooted, I think. There was a suggestion, I believe, in the delivery room. It's like, you have to, you must, I believe so. You must call him Patrick. And, and there was a no effing way, uh, I think. Oh. And I, I, I'm glad that they, I won't say I'm glad, but now that I'm a musician... And I'm in America promoting the release of music. Paddy I'll say Hosier. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patrick it doesn't have the same kind of chime I, to it anyway. I yeah, I'm, I'm happy with Andrew. Yeah. Well, Andrew and Hosier, as, we, as you're known to your many, many fans, listen again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your eye-wateringly, incredibly intense schedule at the moment. What a year you have ahead of you. You've just released the brand new EP, Stunning. Eat Your Young. You've announced details of a North American tour. 25 cities, 30 dates. And maybe I'm getting some of this wrong. You have two dates here in Ireland. Two sold out dates. Malahide Castle on the 30th. INEC in Killarney on the 28th. Yeah. Sorry, you, you can write this down if you've yeah. got... <laughs> yeah, this is all... I'm new. all over your schedule, Ozio. Don't you <laughs> worry. And then, of course, we've got, I suppose, the major event of the year for you is the release of Unreal on Earth at the end of the summer? Yes. Yeah, late summer. How are you feeling ahead of what lies ahead of you? Um... I feel good. I feel good. There's part of you that just gives over, you know, you just sort of, you sort of resign yourself to the, to the tour gods uh, <laughs> a little bit. But um, I think, and it's, it's easier that way, you know, you sort of just go, okay, well, I'll, it's tough looking at a, a year long schedule. So you do it week by you week. You come to the machine as it were. Then. Yeah, you kind of, yeah. you kind of go a week at a time and a, a, a couple of weeks at, at a time. I'm looking forward to releasing the, the album. I'm excited for that. And I'm mm. looking forward for people to hopefully enjoy it. And, and I just, just to just to sort of empty my pockets of it, you know, is, is a good feeling. Is that how it feels? We'll get into it after we have our little record chat. But are you just so excited and I suppose anxious to get it out there that you've been holding on to it for so long? Yeah. That that sense of release that L- you're looking forward to, literally, obviously, you're releasing it, but yeah. that sense of letting go of it. Yeah. I think it's like before you write a song, it takes up a lot of space in yeah. your head. And once you finally get that idea out, it creates new space mm-hmm. for an, another idea, similar to an album. It kind of feels like you've got unfinished business. Like if I was hit by a car now, I'd haunt. I'd haunt the. You know what I mean? I'm. I'm straight to Casper. I've done the overdubs. I haven't done the <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I'd be Casper style ghost. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, around yeah, the cap. yeah. Yeah. So I think it is. It's this feeling of like, okay, um, getting it out there and that being done. I can. There's nothing else you, I can do about it now. And sort of being able to, the stuff that you would might have changed or you would have changed or all that little tiny little things minutia that you lose sleep over you can finally take a deep breath out and go it's, it's done now you know what I mean you can't it's, yeah can't do anymore yeah okay yeah. well listen again you're such a busy man but you did take the time to choose your picks for recorded history was it a difficult one yeah. to whittle down your three most significant albums it was hard to do three and yeah I mean, there was definitely there's a close fourth and fifth and sixth you know what I mean we'll get so. into that for the next episode yeah yeah, yeah. so we'll just get into it Hosier we're going to start back in 1978 an album that's actually this year celebrated its 45th birthday. I didn't know that. What is your first pick for your recorded history? 
I believe it's 78. It's uh, Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous. Yes. Yeah. I was maybe 10 or 11. And my dad got me that CD. Yeah, I was maybe 11, 10 or 11. So it was one of the first albums I ever had. Okay. And with the first CD player that I had as well, too. I used to listen to that a lot as a 10 or 12 year old boy. That's young. I would, that's quite young to be getting into Lizzie. Was, yeah. Yeah. At the same time, it's a funny. I had aspired to learn how to play guitar and I picked it up at 11 years old, maybe, or 12. And I remember my parents getting me guitar lessons and I remember giving them up and then, oh. t- and then teaching them myself how to, then 15, picking it up again and teaching myself how to play guitar. But in that year, in I never stopped listening to Thin Lizzy. I stopped practicing guitar for a year or two. But um, uh, from the age of twelve, I was obs- I grew obsessed with that album uh, in a in a in a way, and it was the one album I had. So I just I listened to that a great. See, those those were the days. And I'm not saying we grew up in the 1910s or things were black and white, but you just had, had access one to yeah. one yeah. album. Yeah, I, my first album was Out of Time by REM. That was my f- best friend for yeah. six or eight months. There was no. Yeah, that's great. You had no choice. And I think it added a certain kind of, you were forced to really listen to it and you had to get on with it. Mm-hmm. At a mm-hmm. first listen, you didn't go, well, I don't like it. Totally. totally. You know, so I think we engaged and I suppose music hit different then. I don't want to get all weepy eyed and nostalgic, but mm-hmm. it's an interesting choice. I was intrigued to see it. I've been doing a little bit of reading. I was doing a Thin Lizzy special on my own show recently. So I was doing a bit of reading about this. Arguably, the greatest live album of all time. Yes. With the emphasis, I think you know where I'm going with this, mm. on the arguable. Mm. Because Is it arguably live? That's it. So if it's gone, Tony Fiscante, what I didn't realise, I suppose, until quite recently as well, is that Thinley's were quite a shambolic band. You know, okay. we know them as yeah. the big hits. Yeah. The stage presence, Philo, iconic. Mm-hmm. They had a hit in 1970, Whiskey in the Jar, came out the traps. Mm-hmm. Similar to your own, obviously, it would take them to church. And it went gangbuster. It was signed by Decca. And then it all fell very flat for them. Mm. And they're on, the, they're on the verge of being dropped. And Eric Bell famously walked off stage in the middle of a gig, their guitarist. Mm. So then things weren't going great. And then they got Fisconti in Bad Reputation, the album. Yeah. And then they had three albums, I think, in about a year. Yeah. Very yeah. prolific. There was Johnny the Fox. And then... There was a wild one. Was a wild one? Yeah. So like they were... And then, sorry, to get back to your choice, they, no, no. they asked Fisconti to do another one. Yeah. And he's like, I don't have the time. Busy being Bowie's muse. So they said, well, let's, get a, let's get a live album together. So this yeah. is what fascinates me about this one is because he came out afterwards and said, well, you know, 75% of that is overdubs. Right. Yeah. So then the band came out fighting and swinging since. And to this day, I was only listening to an interview with Scott Gorham and he's like, he's full of shit. You okay. Know? And it's about 15%. So. Okay. Okay. It does sound amazing. Do you think that that controversy, I suppose that question mark over the album, personally, I don't think it, mm-hmm. it shouldn't impact your enjoyment. What are your, no, what's your views on it? No, it is It is one of the best sounding live albums. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is possible to get, it is possible, especially back then where things weren't being digitally processed really from the stage to the to the desk or whatever way they were doing it um, to get really good sounding albums. There's another amazing sound. Van Morrison has the live in San Francisco album, which is like sounds amazing, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, I'm just trying to think because I, ne- I never really am drawn to live recordings all that much. But this was, I had no, ch- this was like my first impression of Thin Lizzy. And, and so this whole album, to me, it was just like, okay, this is a rock album, but it does sound incredibly clean. I don't think it affects, I don't think it, really changes everything. I think it's just a great album in and in and That's all it is. You know, it's a double album as well. And I think there was something about, I've never seen them live, obviously, but anyone that I know who had the great honour and, and luck to see them live said, that was it. Mm. You know, and I think mm. Visconti, 
a little disingenuous of him to kind of take away from that album, yeah. really, and, and from the lad's achievement there. But with Phil Linnett, such an iconic and important and integral figure to the tapestry of Irish music going back generations. What was it about Phil, do you think, looking back now, maybe having watched the recent mm-hmm. documentary, what was it about him that did the planets align in a certain way for him that, that he resonated so deeply with the Irish public and people yeah. around the world? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. I think when you look at interviews with him I think aside from being just a gorgeous man like because he has just had this yeah like he was just a, a stunning specimen of yeah. a lad like you know um and incredibly charismatic he had this weird he has this very interesting sort of shy conversation like shy interview style a little bit that's also a little bit he's I don't know he's incredibly yeah, he's, confident. he's quite soft-spoken I know what you mean as regards his charisma I think he gave Irish people the idea in my hot take sorry mm-hmm but he gave Irish people the idea that we could be cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think up until that yeah. point we were many things. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think we were rock and roll cool. Not not until that point. No. Not, and he yeah. was like, he's one of us. Yeah, yeah. And he was other than us. And he has that otherworldly, almost alien-like yes. quality that, you know, the yeah. greats have. Yeah. But a great front man, one of the most iconic and mesmerizing front men. When you're on stage, where are you most comfortable, in the studio or on the stage? Are they two very different experiences? They're very different. And I would say definitely more so studio than stage. Yeah, yeah. One thing that, as you say, just about Philo being cool, uh, like some of the stuff, some of the crowd talk that he does in that is like absurdly <laughs> cool. Like, like to the point now, you wouldn't maybe do it so much now. It's very 1970s, but like him just like totally like uh, flirting with women in the audience. Is there anyone there with a bit of, a bit of yeah, Irish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. wouldn't get away with that now, but, like, yeah. but he just yeah. does it with such ease, calm and charisma. Exactly. There's not he that... gets away with it. Yeah. It doesn't so feel... So smooth. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't feel contrived or anything. He's just, he's just exactly smooth. Um, but I, th- I think for me... I'm still learning how to be comfortable on stage. I think uh, it's mm. s- similar to what you were saying about, you know, you're either, you feel like you you were, you got into the game for radio or you got into the game, you know what I mean? I get into the game. I'm not here to be looked at. I'm <laughs> yeah, here to exactly, be listened to. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And I, I sometimes feel the same. I think to me, the crux of the work or the heart of it is in the making of a song yeah. and in the executing of that. And that's really where that, the hard, I won't say the hard work, but I feel the real graft is in the, is the making of the song and that's where no one sees that, you know, and, and the whole strutting about thing of making it look like, I just, I don't know, it, I find stage performances can be at times. Do you have a stage craft, do you think, or is it something that you've been consciously working on or is it just, you just let yourself go? I don't. I've seen you live a couple of times and you, you hold the stage and you fill the stage beautifully. You're very generous with your bandmates and backing singers yeah. as regards involving them. Yeah. You yeah. Know, but is that something, would you have studied the likes of, you know, people talk about Michael Hutchins and Freddie Mercury and I, Debbie Harry, you know, or would you have studied people how they did it and I, themselves? Certainly not. No, I think um, I have great admiration and I see a new, a whole new crop of, of musicians. I was in Tennessee. I saw this wonderful young artist called Jake Wesley Rogers, who sort of channels a kind of a, he channels a sort of Elton John, Freddie Mercury um, energy on stage. Like he really throws himself around the stage in a way that's like particularly rock and roll icon, you know, and I, I have such admiration for it. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And you are embracing this thing that you are something alien. You're not something that's like, you're not the everyday. You're something that's magnificent that's why people come to see you you know like they want something a little yeah and there's there's, maybe there's just a part of me that's still very like I got into folk music first and so it's like well 
no, I'm I'm gonna stand here and sing a song. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sorry. I think that's maybe I thought that's what people wanted. So I I still don't really know where I where I yeah. sit with that. Some of the music is folky, some of it's more rocky, but I don't know if I could believably. But it's great that you have the people on stage with you to kind of yeah. uh, as literally your backup and as your kind of supposed teammates yeah. there that you can yeah. hand over to them or put the focus on the bass player and the drums and then maybe the gospel choir or whatever that. Yeah. I'm just I'm such admiration for people that can get up on stage, be it a comedian or a musician or mm-hmm. or anything. That leap of courage. Yeah, yeah. To, to allow yourself to be so open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, it was something, it was an interview with Billie Eilish. Actually, mm-hmm. I meant to ask you this as well before we get on to your second record. Mm-hmm. I've seen you play massive stadiums. I've seen you play smaller venues. But someone was asking Billie Eilish about, she'd played somewhere in South America and the crowds in South America. Are, yeah, what? You're talking yeah, incredible. 150,000. Yeah. And they said... My God, you know, Billy, that must have been an absolutely mind-blowing experience. And she said, which I was quite struck by, she goes, no, mm-hmm. it gets to a point where because the numbers are so vast and beyond it. comprehension, yeah. that you, it's very hard to make that connection yeah. and that the intimacy is gone, yeah. even though there's like literally only yeah. 20,000 people. Yeah. So she was saying, I much prefer to play yeah. five or 10,000. Yeah. Yeah. And is that something that you would, you would agree with her on? Characteristically honest of Billie Eilish there. Yeah. Say, yeah. Um, I think, I think she, she raises a very good point. I, I've done festivals. You might play 60,000 in a festival, you know, a big stage in a festival or whatever. More so, you know, 60, 80,000 people. But the first person mm. f- feels like they're 50 feet away because they kind of are, you know, and they're beyond the barrier, then the security barrier, et cetera. And you do feel like you don't, you do, like, I really do miss, and we were about to do a run of little pop-up shows around Europe, some of which are like 300 cap, 500 cap. And I'm like, I'm really looking forward to it. But is that in a way almost more daunting? Um, to see the white of their eyes and... You can, but it's so much more exciting. Yeah. And I, I, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I, can, I have a nine-piece band. Like, I couldn't, you know, you... We're, we'll do some pop-ups around the place that'll be 500, 1,000 cap, but they are, not to say that the, that there's certain spaces, there's certain arenas that are really fun, there's certain like there's certain large venues that are really enjoyable, and there's a different buzz with that. But she, there is a sweet spot maybe, but yeah. it, when you do a room with 600 people, seven, and you can see the, the last person at the yeah. back, that's so much fun. Yeah, that's, it must be. That- gorgeous connection yeah. exactly it's yeah. nearly com- you can have a conversation and everybody it feels like everybody's part of something mm. whereas there's some venues you can play where you cannot see anything past us and as people walking up and down with chips and cans and yeah you know you're kind of focusing on that as much as trying to kind of totally establish that connection so we're going to move on now this is we're delving into your recorded history your second choice i'll give it a year i know these were sent last night 1954 and i'm not surprised mm-hmm. To see this, I was actually delighted mm-hmm. to see this album here because this is one of my favorites. So, where are we going for your second choice, Hosier? Second choice is Moaning at Midnight by Hallam Wall. Yeah. That was 50. Did you say 50? Sorry, 1959 59, was that. 59. I had that as your third choice, but we can Oh, I'm into... so sorry. What no, no, no. It was Chet Baker. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know what? We'll I'm do so that sorry. again. Sorry. My fault. Yeah, yeah, my fault. No. Okay. Okay, Hosier, we're going to move on very uh, smoothly now into your second choice. For your recorded history, we were delving through the three albums that have, I suppose, signified the most important moments or times in your life. This is 1954, and I'm not surprised at all to see an artist from this genre and this caliber in your recorded history. Who and what is it? This is Moaning at Midnight by Helen Wolf. Okay. Sorry, it's Chet Baker. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
You should keep these in twice. Do you know what? Fuck Chet Baker. <laughs> no, let's go. No, no, Baker. fuck him. I'm so much better. Oh, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to <laughs> no, Halloween. No, no, please, please. I'm, you should keep this in, though. This is so good. <laughs> twice. Sorry, sorry, like, sorry. I feel like it's like the den. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> you live okay. one. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You live it's there. It's Sailor V from Bewitched. <laughs> so, okay, let's go to Chet Baker things for sure. Okay. I wasn't okay. sure. All right, let's we go. Let's go. Okay, sorry. Okay. That's so funny. Okay, Hosier, that brings us very smoothly on to the second entry in your very interesting, intriguing recorded history. It's 1954, and I'm not surprised at all to see someone of this caliber and renown from this particular genre uh, amongst your picks today. It's 1954, as I say. Where and who are we looking at? It's Chet Picker Sings. Yes. Um, which was a, a huge favorite of mine. Um, I was a late teenager, I think. When I when I discovered this, actually, yeah, and I have really good memories of of being in my brief stint in Trinity College and listening to this album a lot. And when I lived in town for a moment, yeah, um, we used to just play it. We used to play it constantly. He's, I was obsessed with his voice and obsessed with the songs and and the songcraft. Those kind of old, those old. Uh, yeah, it's the, the recordings of these albums. This I'm so happy to see this here for you because how they say this kindly. I was and still am to a certain degree very much of a jazz agnostic. Mm-hmm. I think to fall into that cliche about people with jazz, I suppose I got intimidated. I would have been very intimidated by, I suppose, the genre, the discussion, the the language, mm-hmm. intricacy. Mm-hmm. And I felt excluded from that. And, and by virtue of that fact, I would have turned my back on it mm. being a typical Irish male. Mm. I, I blamed the jazz. <laughs> okay, okay. So I was similar enough. I was in my early 20s and I came across Chet Baker Sings and it opened up my mind and heart mm-hmm. to the whole genre. Mm-hmm. And he's a very tragic figure, obviously. Chet Baker, he was with the Jerry Mulligan trio, very famous trio in 1952. Mm. And they released the single version, an instrumental version. They famously had no drums mm-hmm. of My Funny Valentine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then 54, Chet Baker emerges with, there's eight tracks on the album, all standards from the mm-hmm. American Ensemble. And his voice, I can't still to this day, as much as I've tried, he's trumpet playing, and you'll be able to speak on this a little bit more, mm-hmm. but his trumpet playing was what he's known for. It's mm-hmm. stunning. Mm-hmm. But his voice, yeah. I, it's hard to, how, for anyone who hasn't heard and will be listening to Chet Baker sings after you've recommended it here today, how do you even go about describing his voice? His voice is nearly as soft as his playing yeah. I don't, and i don't know if it's that his 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 trumpet playing is he's a very smooth and gentle attack uh, to his to his trumpet playing and he, he seems to approach the voice his his voice in a, in a very similar sort of like with a similar spirit okay. but his voice is as smooth as his it's and as un- handsome sounding as his face. But he's a gorgeous looking man. Yeah, yeah. So but that voice it's it's almost you can smell the smoke Mm-hmm. In the club, mm-hmm. everything's kind of dark. There's people coughing gently in the background. Yeah. Cigarettes being put. Yeah, and he gets up on stage. Like you say, it's almost as if the instrument doesn't begin with the trumpet. Or mm-hmm. It starts at the bottom of his toes, and it comes through him, mm-hmm. through his voice. And again, it's so hard. As you can probably listen to me now, I am struggling to discover the right words. But his voice brings me to a place. When you're listening to, say, Chet Baker sings, mm-hmm. for anyone again, where would you recommend? people or how would you recommend people listen to this? Oh my goodness. It became, I mean, 
you could sort of shrug this off. It's very like it is very gateway jazz, and it and it's sort of like evening dinner party music is mm. where you could kind of shrug it off with. It became a favorite for me when I was hungover. Yes, um, it's just very, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, where in the mornings, you yeah. know, it was like every, you might have just a bunch of bodies lying around your house, yeah. and it's like, okay, well, I've got to clean the kitchen. I'll throw in some coffee, and I might fry up some eggs or something like that. You just feel your body going. Yeah, 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 it's, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and it is—it's jazz that requires nothing from you, and but like in that in that sense, it's it's like it is very—it puts its arms around you, and his voice very much puts its arms around you, and um, you know, he was a bit of a known as a bit of a devil in his in his day, you know, and he was a def- demon, yeah, totally. a, a demon who had, was racked with his own demons, you yeah. know, yeah. Uh, any standout tracks from the album? I mean, it starts beautifully, doesn't it? With but not for me. Yeah, that little jaunty. I was going to say that little jaunty horn. Yeah, I should probably be afraid of that. <laughs> that little jaunty trumpet even sounds bad. I'm going to move on from that entire uh, sentence construction. Like, but it was a nickname for Chet. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, I was written in the wheel, the wall in Wheelands. Yeah, here comes the jaunty horn. But that and then his yeah. voice just comes in, and you're going, "What in God's name?" Yeah, it kind of puts me in a convertible car, whizzing around the south of France. Yes, mid fifties. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, the cigarette's inexplicably still in my mouth and not being right, playing. Right, yeah. And I'm on the way to some nonsense or some mischief. Yes, yeah, and yeah. And this song comes on. But my favorite track on the album is uh, I Get Along Without You. That's 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 one of my all time favorite songs. And I think that, that would be my favorite off the off the uh off the album is lyrically I think that the song was written I'd I'd have to look this up, but I believe it was written by a it was like a nearly a poem and then it was it was set to music but it's so heartbreaking it, the lyrics are stunning yeah. yeah they really are it's a heartbreaking I get along without you very well except when soft rains fall oh. and drip from oh, leaves stop it <laughs> but yeah, it's always such a beautifully written song and his voice is so heavy with sadness mm-hmm. and regret and then a little bit of defiance I don't need you but mm-hmm. only when it's raining and, yeah it's you know, you know it's just this sheer denial this sort of like I actually yeah exactly I don't miss you I don't you know, except all the time, except when I hear oh, your name or I yeah. hear somebody laugh and it reminds me of you. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's brutal. Like it's a really, you're, you'd be brutalized by that song if you listen to it in the wrong, in the wrong Because it tricks you. You think, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So he, and his voice lends itself so beautifully. He'd, as we've touched on previously, a very tragic, troubled mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm pretty much a drug a drug addict for most of his I believe so and yeah. it, it cost him a great deal it and cost him a great deal cool, and his life eventually I suppose and he's, yeah. he suffered a, quite a severe beating yeah that knocked out his teeth I believe so yeah. that impa- that impacted his his embouchure yeah. 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 yeah and he was found obviously dead at, at, on, the, on the road outside his apartment building and Mm-hmm. Still a lot of conjecture as to how he passed, but I suppose life on the road for someone like Chet Baker was the worst possible place for him to be, considering his, yeah. I suppose his addictions and his weaknesses yeah. in, in that regard. But I wanted to ask you is about you know just before you sorry not to put you in a bad spin before you go on your tour, it's going to be a very extensive, intensive couple of months for mm-hmm. you, and you've obviously toured many times before. But the pitfalls that artists in the past would have had beside them and in front of them mm-hmm. and placed in front of them. Mm-hmm by, I suppose, so-called friends and hangers-on. Is it a much safer place now to tour? You know, do you need to make sure, first of all, that you've got good folks around you to, yeah. to keep an eye on you? Yeah, I think touring in general has changed. I mean, what's interesting about the music industry, it never really had its come-to-Jesus moment. Um, a lot of other industries that are entertainment or like showbiz yeah. industries sort of had th- those things. Music never really. There's a few cases of, 
I, I will say I think it's very different now than back in back in like the day when we're talking about Chet Baker as well. Jazz players of his generation, people that would have hung around with like Miles Davis and Charlie Parker, they were the rock stars of their day. Proper. And like whatever we think about that sort of rock star, sex and drugs and rock and roll, like that was like those jazz dudes were next level. But Duke yeah. Ellington famously would get up at He'd go to bed around four or five. Like he wouldn't get up till about two in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah every yeah. like for most of his life. Yeah, because that was his. Yeah, he played and he drank and he smoked and he partied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two three in the morning and then went to bed and wouldn't get up till till two. Yeah, God bless. Um, I Sounds think, all right to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I will say that that is an element of touring. Not that you're partying, because I just wouldn't be able to perform if I was partying. Mm. Like you, you do three gigs in a row, then you did take a day off. You do two gigs in a row. Like you just, you just learn that your body can't, can't, but you, you get off stage at 11 PM or, or half 11. You don't fall asleep till 3 AM, 4 AM anyway. It must be, know? even if I'm doing a DJ gig, I, I can't sleep. That's just me playing in front of yeah. 250 you're people. You're wired. Your adrenaline is through the, is at 90, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and uh, you're just wired to the moon at that stage. So it's, it's, and it, you could, you could, you might just be drinking water the whole show or you're drinking tea, but it's like, um, I think there's an adrenaline. You're, you're like, you're, you're very alert. You're incredibly, um, you know, you're in work mode. You know, and so do you just want to talk to people? And is it hard for you then to switch off as regards? You just go to your room and yeah, unwind. I, there's a lot of stuff after shows. I don't know if we'll post COVID how we'll be able to do this, but there's usually fans waiting outside as well. So right. you could you could meet forty to a hundred people um, after a show and. and and then there's that. That's a whole other thing. And then you sort of step down. There's a meet and greet after show, and then there might be a fan meet and greet after show. And then so by the time you actually begin to sort of chill out, it's two a.m. in the morning. It's two a.m. And then you're, you know, you're sleeping on a bus. So it's it's like if you can fall asleep before four, you're doing well. And so Duke getting up at noon or or two p.m. I totally understand that. You so know? you wake up in a different city then. Yeah. And is it difficult to sleep on a bus? I cannot. Sleep on transport. I've had to learn. You've had to learn. Had to learn skills, yeah. yeah. So like meditation and stuff like that okay. helps. And there's ways to do it. But as you say about that sort of keeping yourself right and keeping yourself healthy, it I think for a lot of different reasons, like the the you know the whole. I'm sure there is bands. I'm sure there is acts who really burn the candle at both ends. There's a time when I would have I would have been more up for you know a, a party and a, yeah. and a drink and stuff like that. But I you know I'm. I don't feel. say it. Don't say you're old. <laughs> your, I wouldn't say that. Don't I wouldn't you say that. Dare. But and I'm still this mad chaos in me still. But at the same time, it's kind of like, look, you're here to people pay. You know, people pay to see you in in good form, and you want to be in good form. There's nothing worse than not showing up with your best self to a show. And and really, a tour, touring is is a task in in maintenance and in maintaining yourself. And that's just as important. It really as, is. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Now, speaking of fascinating, the wonderful choice for your third entry and your final entry into your recorded history is record three. Mm-hmm. It's 1959. Yes, we're not too far down the road from Chet Baker, and again, not at all surprised considering what your father did uh, as a musician. But who and what is your third and final choice, Hosier, for your recorded history? So this is "Moaning at Midnight" wow. by yep. Helen Wolf. Uh, which is one of my favorite albums of all time, I think. And I was 15, so this is another period, but I remember just getting into Helen Wolf in a big way when I was 16, 17. Um, 
it may be 16, 17. It was this. There was also, it was nearly going to be the London Sessions album, which is Eric Clapton is on that. And, and he did this, this, this album in, in London. Um, but, uh, Moment at Midnight, I remember just listening to a great deal. I was obsessed with his voice. His voice. And the feeling that I used to get from listening to his voice, the atmosphere he sort of summons in, in, in some of these songs. The title track was one that just I thought was incredible, the way that album opens up. And I was, this is also a time where I probably w- would have smoked and gargled whiskey to do anything to just get a voice like that. <laughs> you know, I really was upset. Well, you would have had to have been six foot three yeah. and 20 stone. He was a big, big, imposing figure. But that voice then that comes out of it. Yeah, yeah. He was he, aptly named. Yeah, totally. Howlin' Wolf, yeah. you know, and I think he's, he's mouth organ playing on this. Yeah, yeah. This is a compilation album, isn't it? So this came out in chess, 1959. And this is a compilation album of I think eight years of of early yeah of sorry, early singles yeah exactly and it all hangs together beautifully it does it considering does. it's a compilation album yeah you can kind of hear the different studio techniques here and there some are a little bit more lo-fi than than other stuff but um it's uh, yeah again I think I just and it's more so like I don't write twelve bar blueses or I don't try to try to create like blues songs all I don't aim to do it. But there's something of a feeling that I get when I listen to blues music, when I listen to Howlin' Wolf, and in some cases, Muddy Waters, Mm. that it's just so exciting. There's nothing, it just makes my hair stand on end. And There's a primacy to it. Yeah. And I think that the rawness that you hear with Howlin' Wolf, you know, obviously Smokestack Lightning gets a lot of the attention. Mm Mm-hmm. It's an iconic blues track, mm-hmm. but it's how many more years for me mm. on this that people have said some very well-placed people like T-Bone Burnett, for example, and many others would consider this the very first rock and roll record of all time. Yes. Yeah. Ike Turner on the piano, mm. that almost iconic little Richard would have mm-hmm. taken this, the torch on from that, mm-hmm. little, I can't even describe it, little jangly yeah. piano bit at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And then the rhythm of it and then the drum Mm-hmm. You know, and people would say that he was actually, now listen, it's contentious. Yeah. But when you listen to it, it's an astonishing, powerful, and like there aren't many instruments on it, but like the, the arrangements, and it's his voice though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's the passion and the rawness and the power. Totally. And the belief he has in what he's singing. Totally. And it, there's some, there's some like, like sections of some of those songs. There's some like moments of rhythm and the, it's that repetitive element of like, of, of blues that's sort of like, this, it depends, like Smokestack Lightning is nearly like this one, it's kind of like a one chord boogie, it's not mm. quite it, but it's like, um, there's something trance-like with, with certain blues musics and certain mountain blues musics that I, that I got into that sort of, that those one chord boogies that were either like John Lee Hooker. But when you listen to on some of the stuff on here, and it's, I suppose it's why people go back and sample this, but like it's, 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 in, it's not that far from stuff that's incredibly fresh, like yeah. stuff that like you might hear like a, a beat you know, they're actually rhythmically and what's happening in it, uh, the the components of it. You could you could you could just take a section of it, and it's an incredibly fresh sounding. It's why people are flipping these beats still. But there's something incredibly engaging. Like they there's like, you know, they're not too far from something that Drake would sing over or something yeah. like that. You know what I mean? But there's a timelessness. To all, all greatness is timeless. You know, I wasn't surprised to see a bit of Howlin' Wolf as one of your choices today because of. Famously, your father's a very well-established and respected blues musician. Mm. When you were a child, he was a drummer. He was a drummer, yeah. Yeah, so I can only imagine, this was a great envy, the amount of records and the quality of records that 
must have been lying around. Yeah, he had this great he had this great collection of blues and jazz albums. And uh once I sort of started dipping into that, I found that really, really valuable, I have to say. Um listen to kind of soul records and, and uh and yeah, and blues records and stuff. It's so funny actually, just one odd memory of Mavis was in Dublin. Was Mavis in Dublin or were we in America? Mavis Staples was, I think she was in Dublin and uh, and my dad got to meet her and he brought in for her to sign. When he was a teenager, he had bought a uh, Staples Singers oh like single God. Of, of the original, it's first pressing of like, of I'll take you there, I think. Oh, wow, okay. And he was able to bring, bring it to her and be like... What a moment for him. Yeah, he was like, I was 17 when I bought this or something. And it's just, it's just nuts. It's like... Uh, so he was always, I think, from a young age, he was always fascinated with sort of with American blues tradition and American like rhythm and blues and 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 soul music and stuff like that. But I, I definitely I'm massively the net beneficiary of that. You know, as I get older, I'm like, okay, he's got all these inc- like he always had such a wealth of music in the house that was um that was along that tradition. So I I definitely at, at different points in my life and go, okay, that's the year I was big into Sam and Dave. That's the year I was big time into 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 Helen Wolf for Johnny Hooker mm. or something. I want a Petri dish to kind of formulate your own voice yeah. and your own influences. Obviously, a lot of blues, there's jazz. Mm-hmm. And then you've, you've somehow, I think this is one of your great assets is that you've somehow melded that in, like all great artists do, into something new and fresh. Is that something that you're very conscious of, is to, to keep evolving as an artist, not to get pigeonholed or stuck in, to be known as one particular kind of genre? Yeah, I, I don't really know. I, I sort of, um, I find certain elements of like, when when music is 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 being made now and people try to classify is this this genre is it that genre mm. is it is it post rock is it whatever and then it's it's like for me I just try to create music that I think is is beautiful I, f- I find if I if I say to myself oh no it must be this type of alternative or this type of indie or this type of like this type of rock or this type of that's that's no good to me. That's I find that really uh, restrict restrictive and and also it just if if it, it feels more authentic to just channel the influences naturally rather than to try and and try and put them into a scene or to something. Try to Frankenstein you know? them together into something. Yeah. yeah, or or to to write along some sort of style guide of like okay, well this is what this type of genre must sound like or this type of music must you know that it must fit into something. So it, I just try to channel it naturally and. And they just it finds its it finds its way there. Some of the references, yeah. Some, sometimes you you wear your I, I would wear my influences on on its sleeve on some songs and be like lyrically even point to the, the influences. But um, I don't know. You know, I definitely can hear still and some stuff that I write is like when I got into Skip James or I got into into Harlem Wolf. But Skip James as well had this kind of modular thing. You'd go from major to minor sometimes and and like. There's, there's, yeah, it's the, it's the feeling. I don't know how to describe it, but there's a feeling you get. And you mentioned Mavis Staples there. You're obviously all very open to collaborative work. You know, that must have been a great moment for you to meet one of your childhood heroes and one of your father's heroes as well and work with her on a song that was inspired by Nina Simone. This is almost like a dinner party question, so I apologize. But is there anyone still with us that, or that has passed on that you would love to do a collaboration with or a duet or work with in the studio? Um, yeah, there's um, there's tons. I I always I always say Tom Waits. Be, like Tom Waits was a huge one when I yeah. got into, it. and the very nearly there was a few Tom Waits albums that were on that list. Yeah. That would be the the close fours and fives. Um, uh, 
he's somebody who I don't think I'd be a musician if I I just became so enamored with 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 him and his and his work as a teenager. Again, he was sort of my like meta- he was like my Marlon Manson or something. I don't know how to describe, but he was like my little my little treehouse where yeah, I would yeah, go to, and yeah. no one no none of my mates really listened to Tom Waits, but I, he was like I was obsessed with him, and um. Uh, so yeah, I think he has had a huge. So I, I always mention his name for something like that. And you're obviously very much associated with using your music and the connection you have with your fans. There are many now millions of fans around the world with a lot of activism. You've been des- described as a protest singer, and you've associated yourself with some very important, significant causes over the years. Was this something that you were insistent on in yourself from the beginning, or is it something that has developed throughout your career that you use your platform, as it were? Yeah, to kind of shine some lights on, on causes that mean something so much yeah. to you. I think it's just something that developed, and I I'm kind of very hesitant and and kind of resistant to be considered or labeled an activist. I think I I know I've met a lot of like a, close friends of mine or activists or what I would view as activists or people who who make that a part of their work and part of their life and and like activists whose activism has cost them a lot, you know, or it is really is a, is a very hard boulder that they're pushing up a hill constantly to watch it roll back down, you know? And, um, so it's very, I think for me, it's more just if there's been elements at times where I feel like the work, you know, something in, within my conscience uh, is, 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 is sort of resonates in the work or, or there's space in my work for, for an element of my own sense of conscience. Um, that that's been that space has been allowed to be there and um in the case of like let's say Nina cried power I think it was just reminding and in a quite a difficult time I think like like geopolitically um that uh what you know nothing that we have ever arrives at without without a spirit of of kind of protest or a spirit of resistance and and that's that's always going to be true. It's just always going to be true, and it just felt like it was a time uh, where that was that was um, being that element of 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 you know patriotic sort of protest or that sort of uh, that was being sort of vilified. So it's it's sometimes the work just has space for that element of conscience. But I I I, I don't know if I call myself an activist or even an you know even a protest singer. I I don't really know. No, I I, I know what you mean. I that's something that's I suppose been. Totally. Meddled at you in the past. Yeah, it's I know just, you've resisted it. I don't know what the definition of it is. So I, that's how I. I, I it's a hard one. Yeah, you know, because sometimes again, and I wanted to ask you this: Do you ever get frustrated with other artists that don't use some of the the access they have to to fans? And again, to use that awful word, but that platform that they just don't use it to do more. I I think there's artists who are. There, there is, there's times where artists absolutely have an, have an opportunity to do so. I think in some cases, not everybody is, not everybody is politically, um, and like to me, it's like we talk, talk about politics as if thing, everything's party politics or everything's to do with mm-hmm. something that happens in, in a suit and a tie in a government building. Politics is everything. Like politics is the clothes you wear and, and the, you know, it's the rent that you pay and, and everything's politics. You know, it, it, everything comes down to a political s- struggle or a political experience, you know. Yeah, there's there's musicians that that really, for the sake of a quiet life, maybe just don't want to. I get it, and it's like they don't want to. They don't want to split their, especially in territories where politics is very divisive. Party politics sometimes it's for the sake of a quiet life. Sometimes it's because genu- genuinely they just it's just not 
not everybody thinks about these things and not everybody and i get it because like i get some people also just find it boring and they don't want to talk about it and that's a shame but i think there also it has to be a there also is a space and there's a there is a function for music and art that is also just that is credit something that's outside of that sphere yeah. too 10 years since take me to church congratulations it's Thank gone you. diamond 30th most listened to song on spotify was there a sense even at that time that it was going to be so certainly not um again that was the first song i ever released it's amazing I, really yeah what a 10 years holds you it's wild yeah it is wild yeah again at the time i was just really a college dropout i didn't really have a band together i performed on that song i played i just had arranged the song and, and played everything by the drums um and it was it, it was very slap it felt very slapdash at the moment so it, i just didn't think it was going to be the crossover hit that it was going to be and that brings us 10 years down the line we've got the new ep eat your young it's stunning Thank you. It is absolutely stunning. And I know you've said in previous and recent interviews, not for fans to think that it is entirely representative of what will be mm -hmm. uh, coming out in the album at the end of the summer. Mm -hmm. How would you describe what fans can expect? Mm -hmm. And, you know, why did you pick these particular tracks from the album as a kind of a, mm -hmm. a slight insight? I think, if nothing else, uh, it was nice to give sort of two or three examples if nothing else, Eat Your Young is one of my favorites, I think, on the record. I mm. think I just always had a little bit of love for that. It's fun and it's playful and it, it sort of says what it intends to say, to, to say and sort of uh, it achieves that. Um, All Things End is just, is just nearly... That's my favorite. favorite. Oh, thank you very that much. That is my absolute... I think that's one of the best songs you've ever, uh, ever, yeah. ever recorded. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. honestly, it is an absolutely mind-blowing experience in the gospel. Thank you very the much. The journey you go on in that song. But the, one of my favorite lyrics, this is a very, you know, I suppose there's a lot going on in this. And even these three songs, three, you know, there's Dante's Inferno influence, mm -hmm. the, the circles of hell and all that, you know. And there's a beautiful line in that particular track. And just knowing that everything will end should not change our plans, mm -hmm. then we begin again. Mm -hmm. I'm, very, I'm very moved by that. Oh yeah, um, thank you very much. And I, I think I think a, I think a big influence lyrically for that is that Brendan Kennelly poems. You know, you know, begin. Um, it's called begin or begin again. Um, uh, but um, but again, it is that it is that that sense of starting again. I think, yeah. So each are young. Being kind of one circle, the circle of gluttony, um, or and 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 all things end falling into the circle of heresy, just as a, as a, as a, a taster, that the the album is arranged into sort of nine little circles. It's not it's not all sort of doom and gloom, but it's just was a nice way of of trying to credit a journey. It's a nice structure, a handrail with which to exactly. It's a journey, not a concept album. Exactly. Yes, there e we go. Exactly. Hosier. It's been a genuine honor and pleasure. I've been told so many times how nice and warm and friendly you are. It's all lies. I'm very disappointed to find out. <laughs> that it's all lies. It's all lies. Listen, best of luck with the EP. It's beautiful. Thank you. The new album coming out at the end of summer. Um, yes. And then you're you're in the academy for a few days. Yeah. And then it's it's gangbusters all around the world. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you for not just for sharing your tunes today, but for sharing the music of the last ten years. It's been. Thank An incredible you. journey for us fans. And we cannot wait to see where you're going to go next. Thank you very much. Thanks let us descend into the Dante's Inferno of Hell yeah. as one. Yeah. Hosier, thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, there you have it. That is just about it for this week's episode of Recorded History with guest number three, the very talented, and I have to say the very, very lovely Hosier, as I said in the podcast. His loveliness and his soundness is a stuff of legend in and around the business. So it was so great to be able to experience it for myself and share it all with you lot. Three great record choices, as you'd expect. And if he's inspired you to go and buy any one of them, if not all three of the records that he's mentioned, I would actually urge you, nay, demand you immediately get Chet Baker Sings. Then we'd love if you supported our partners at the Record Hub. Dot com. They're just a phenomenal outlet for all your record needs and 100,000% Irish. So that's great too. We simply couldn't make the podcast without their generosity and just general soundness. I do hope you've enjoyed our little crate dive together. You'll join me again next week and every Sunday after that. Yet new episodes every Sunday from in and around 9 a.m. Get your bits together for the week ahead by downloading the new episode of Recorded History. Uh, we'll be hearing, yes, another delightful mix of homegrown and international talent. We've got actors, writers, broadcasters, artists, and many, many more lined up for you over the next couple of weeks and months. Each guest has a unique relationship with music, as we all do, really. And listen, and I can't, I really just can't wait each and every week to share my chats with you on Recorded History. Thank you all so much for taking the time to grace me with your lovely ears. And if you're still here, can I ask you to hit the one? There it is. You can just see it there. If you, Yeah, there it is. The old subscribe button. The old subscribe button. Give it a punch there with your thumb. And you know, you'll make me very, very happy. You'll keep me in secondhand Depop Adidas original zip-up tops for another couple of weeks at least. And who could ask more than that? I've been Ed Smith, and this has been Recorded History. And as ever... You've been absolutely amazing. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready. Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com, your local Irish and online record store.